congregation, we all know that when we are invited to an important social event, especially if a prominent individual would be present at such an event, that long before that event, we begin to make preparations for that event. We select clothing and all kinds of things happen because we recognize the importance of that event. And we will prepare ourselves accordingly for that event. The congregation that pales in comparison to what it means when Christ, in a very special way, is present in the midst of the congregation when the Lord's Supper is administered. We recognize, of course, that He is present every Lord's Day. When the Word is proclaimed, it is ultimately Christ who walks among us. But when the sacraments are administered, and particularly when the Lord's Supper is administered, it is a very special encounter between Christ and between His children. And therefore, it has been a very, it's been a very appropriate tradition that we prepare ourselves for that event. And that's why we do have a week of preparation, a week in which we are called to focus on that event, focus on the special and extraordinary nature of that moment when Christ in such a tangible way communes with his people, communes with them, and nourishes our souls by means of the visible signs of that sacrament. And so in this evening hour, in preparation for that special day, next Lord's Day, we will continue our exposition of the Beatitudes. And in God's providence, we have arrived at the fourth Beatitude, which will serve very appropriately as a passage by which we can also examine ourselves in this evening hour, whether we belong to those who will be invited to partake of that blessed spiritual meal next week. And so our text will be the sixth verse of Matthew 5, where we read God's word as follows, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so this beatitude very clearly and very plainly focuses on a blessed yearning for righteousness. A blessed yearning for righteousness. And again, the points of the text, the points of the sermon, will come naturally out of the text. And so boys and girls... Again, read along with me. It's a very short text. But first of all, we're going to look at the object of this yearning. What is it that the citizen of God's kingdom yearns for? What is it? What is it that they desire? And of course, the answer is righteousness. Our text says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Secondly, we will focus on the nature of that yearning. How do they yearn? What is the manner of their yearning? 
And Christ uses the words hungering and thirsting. Again, we will see that the choice of those words is very and highly significant. And thirdly, the outcome of this yearning. For they shall be filled. They who have such a yearning, who yearn after this righteousness of which Christ is speaking, will be satisfied. They will be filled. They will be filled to overflowing. So a blessed yearning for righteousness. The object of this yearning, the nature of this yearning, and the outcome of this yearning. So what we have learned so far, congregation, that in this portrait, this perfect portrait that Christ gives us of the citizens of his kingdom, a portrait that consists of seven components, and so we have a a perfect portrait, we have focused so far on the opening section, the opening portion of that portrait, the first three Beatitudes, which describe for us what the inner disposition of the Christian is, the inner disposition of the citizen of God's kingdom, a disposition, as we have seen, which is a lifelong disposition, as all the Beatitudes are in the present tense. So all these things that we have already considered, they are always true. They are true as long as the Christian lives here on earth. And we have seen that those three marks that Christ gives us, they ultimately explain why the citizens of God's kingdom do what we will focus on tonight. Why is it that they hunger and thirst after righteousness? Why do they yearn after righteousness? Why is it ultimately that they yearn after the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the work of God's Spirit in them is of such a nature that Christ becomes for them the only solution, that Christ becomes for God's children the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And that's why we need to experientially understand our spiritual poverty. We need to understand experientially that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are utterly bankrupt, that in our deep fallen Adam, we haven't just lost something, but we have lost everything. And if you recall, ultimately, ultimately what we have lost is God himself. God was Adam's portion. And when we fell in Adam... We lost God as our portion. So that's number one. Secondly, the Spirit will so work in our hearts our whole life that we will recognize that we have sinned against that God after whom my soul now begins to yearn. Because when the Spirit of God makes me a new creature, when He makes me spiritually alive, He sheds abroad in my soul the love of God. And that's why that spiritual poverty becomes so painful to us. Because by nature, we are all spiritually bankrupt. But sadly, by nature, that does not bother us at all. But when the Spirit of God makes us alive, when He grafts us into Christ, 
That becomes a grievous matter to us. And so we will not only recognize how bankrupt we are, but we will also mourn and grieve over that bankruptcy, grieve over our sinnership, grieve over the fact that the very God for whom my soul now yearns, that that God is the God whom I have offended by my sin. And then thirdly, we saw two weeks ago that the Spirit of God also makes us meek. And what is that meekness again? That meekness is a recognition of who God is. That meekness is the result of recognizing who I am in God's sight. That meekness means that I, as a bankrupt sinner, that I take my proper place before God. That I realize that as a sinner I cannot stand before Him. That I realize that I am utterly undone. And all of these things are absolutely essential in order to bring us experientially to the place, not only once, but over and over again, to bring us experientially to that place where we realize that we need a Savior, that we need the very Savior who is set before us in the gospel. And so that's that inner disposition. And I've described that as the Holy Spirit again and again, over and over again, makes these things real in order to bring us to Christ. That's his goal. He empties us in order to fill us with Christ. He brings us to an end in ourselves so that we would look outside of ourselves and put all of our confidence and trust in Christ alone. That we would realize that the only way I can be reconciled with God is through that precious Christ. And so the Holy Spirit truly makes room for Christ. And he does that over and over again. Because the beatitude that we're going to focus on tonight is the central beatitude. And so remember, boys and girls, I've used the example of the wheel, with the, an old-fashioned wheel with its spokes and an axle. And so that fourth beatitude is the axle around which the whole wheel of Christian experience revolves. All those marks, the, the three initial ones, and then also number five, six, and seven, being merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers, they all connect together. They all come together in that central beatitude, namely hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And there Christ describes for us that when a citizen in God's kingdom, when they exercise faith, when they put their trust in him, not only once, but over and over again, it is because they hunger and thirst so intensely for him. And therefore, time and again, they take refuge to him. They put their trust in him. And when we do, we will experience over and over again that we will be satisfied. Because that's ultimately the Holy Spirit's desire. The Holy Spirit does not want us to rest in our emptiness. He doesn't want us to rest in our misery. 
No, he's dealing with us this way. He is always dealing with us this way. Because he wants us to rest in Christ alone. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So let's talk about that important word, righteousness, one of the key words of the Bible. So what is righteousness, boys and girls? It's not so difficult. Just remember this. Righteousness literally means that which is right. Now, the question is, what is right? Now, we can have our own ideas of what we think is right. But of course, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is what is right not by our standard, but what is right by God's standard. Because ultimately, that is the only standard that matters. And so when God created us, everything was right. Adam and Eve had a righteous relationship with God. A relationship that was completely conformed to God's being. We could put it this way, that Adam and Eve were as righteous as God was righteous. The same righteousness that he had granted them. And to use a a popular expression, Adam and Eve were therefore completely compatible with God. Completely compatible with God. That means that there was nothing between them. That means that God could freely embrace his creature in the arms of his love without any, any holding back. Because he saw reflected in Adam and Eve a reflection of his very own character. So they had a right relationship with God, a relationship that fully measured up to God's perfect and flawless standard. But as a result of that right relationship, they also lived a right life, a life that completely agreed with God's revealed will. And of course, that continues to be the standard of righteousness. This book, this book, God's revealed will, sets before us God's standard of that which is right. And Adam and Eve, because they were righteous, also lived a righteous life. Not only were they united to their maker, but they also lived in obedience to their maker. They lived lives in which they honored their maker. They lived lives in which everything they did was in perfect harmony with God's revealed will to them. And that righteousness they lost when they sinned. Adam and Eve became unrighteous. They no longer had a right relationship with God. They were separated from God. And instead of being righteous creatures, they had become unrighteous. From that moment, as sinners, they began to live according to their standard rather than God's standard. That's precisely what defines our sinnership. 
By nature, we want to live according to our will, according to our standard, rather than God's standard. But even though Adam and Eve fell, God did not change. God's character did not change. And that's why God immediately taught them the gospel. That's why before they were expelled from the garden, God taught them the gospel of the bloody sacrifice. God himself provided a covering for Adam and Eve. He taught them that he, a righteous God, would still be able to have a relationship with them, not based on their righteousness, which they had none, but that he would be able to have a relationship with them on the basis of the righteousness which he would provide. And that's what this is all about, congregation. And by nature, we fail to recognize that we don't have that righteousness. By nature, we are very inclined to think highly of ourselves. That's why the Pharisees, as I've said several times, were so offended by Christ. When Christ, as we read again, boldly said, your righteousness is worthless in the sight of God. If you have nothing better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Because even our very best works, even what we consider to be our righteousness, even that is as a filthy rag in the sight of God. And that's why it is the Holy Spirit's work to empty us. That's why he deals with us. That's why he shows us our bankruptcy. That's why he causes us to mourn over sin. That's why he causes us to take a proper place before God. To realize that before a righteous God who loves righteousness, a God who cannot compromise, a God who can by no means clear the guilty, that my only hope is outside of myself. My only hope is in the righteousness that God has provided. Oh, it is the foolishness of man, as we read so powerfully in the opening verses of Romans 10 that we are inclined to go about to establish our own righteousness. What a blessing it is. The Spirit of God teaches us again and again that we have no righteousness of our own. Because as I said earlier, His goal is to direct us to what our reformers so fondly called, Luther, very especially Luther, so fondly called that alien righteousness, that righteousness that is outside of us, a righteousness that we can no longer produce. And the marvelous, marvelous truth of the gospel is that God in Christ has provided that righteousness which he, has, which he requires. That's the amazing truth of what Christ has accomplished. God knows that you and I, as fallen sinners, we cannot measure up to his standard. That's impossible from our side. And yet he is a God who delights in mercy, a God who has been moved eternally to reconcile sinners to himself 
But the only way that could be accomplished, if there would be a righteousness that would be fully acceptable to him. And so the amazing truth of the gospel is that the gospel unveils to us that in Christ, God offers the righteousness that he requires. A righteousness which we cannot manufacture, but a righteousness that he accomplished by what we call his active and his passive obedience. By his active obedience, he lived a perfectly righteous life, but he also accomplished a perfect sacrifice. And so he lived a life that we cannot live, and he died a death that we cannot die. And so J.C. Ryle says it so plainly and so simply. He said, we are saved by the doing and the dying of Christ. Remember that. We are saved by the doing and the dying of Christ. And what Christ accomplished, what he accomplished, is he merited a perfect, flawless righteousness. A righteousness that perfectly agrees with God's non-negotiable standard. And the amazing thing is that we see that even though we fell and we provoked God to wrath, God did not change. His character did not change. And precisely because he is a God of love, therefore he thought out eternally, he thought out a way whereby unrighteous sinners like us can be righteous again. And that's why he has provided his only begotten son for that purpose. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this amazing passage. For he hath made him to be sin for us. He so directed it that this Savior completely identified himself with our sinnership, even though we knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's it. And it's that righteousness that is unveiled in the gospel. It is that righteousness for which the Holy Spirit makes room in our hearts time and again. It is that righteousness for which the Spirit causes the true believer to hunger and to thirst. It's that lesson that the Apostle Paul had learned as well. What must it have been those three days in Damascus when this man who viewed himself as the Pharisee of the Pharisees, when he was stripped of all his righteousness, what must that have been for him to become utterly undone? And yet, the Spirit did not leave him there. So his, his conversion story, his circumstances may have been very unique, and they are unique. In that sense, we could say there has never been a conversion like it before or after. But what Paul has in common with every child of God, with every true believer, is that we all come to the place where we realize that we have no righteousness. That we learn the lesson that Paul learned that he so beautifully articulates in Philippians 3 verse 9. 
and he says, to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So I ask you, as we anticipate the Lord's Supper, do you understand this in some measure? Have you learned in some measure that you have no righteousness, that you are bankrupt in God's sight? But do you also understand experientially what it means to hunger and to thirst after righteousness? And that brings us to our second point, the nature of that yearning. And Christ, as you know, throughout his whole ministry, he was an absolute master at using illustrations from nature to teach people spiritual truths. And here he uses an analogy to which every human being in the world can relate. Every human being, in some measure, knows what it means to hunger and thirst. I'll grant you, there are people in the world who understand that better than we do. There are people in the world who still don't know what they are going to eat the next day. There are people in the world who experience hunger and thirst in a very intense way. It was very real in World War II, especially in the hunger winter in the Netherlands. People knew what hunger was. They were desperate to get a small bowl of soup. And children would be waiting outside, waiting for those barrels of soup, which was not more than just water with some little substance in it. And they would wait for those barrels to be thrown outside, and they would literally dive inside those barrels to lick the walls clean, so hungry they were. Because you see, hunger and thirst are essential desires of a living body. God created us as creatures in such a way that our needs are met, our physical needs are met by there being hunger and thirst for that which we need to sustain our lives. And so hunger and thirst are desires that must be met. Ultimately, people will go to great lengths to satisfy their hunger or to satisfy their thirst. You know the story in the Old Testament where the city of Samaria was surrounded, was besieged. The situation became so serious that they were, they were killing their own children. That's how hungry they were. Now Christ uses this analogy. And so he is saying this spiritual yearning of the true believer, the nature of that yearning is such that it must be satisfied. We can't live permanently with that yearning. So a true Christian can never be rest, can never find rest in how empty he is and how poor he is. A true Christian, wrought upon by the Holy Spirit, has this desire wrought by the Spirit, a desire that must be satisfied, a desire for 
that righteousness and more than that. No, ultimately a desire for the Lord Jesus Christ himself in whom I can obtain that righteousness. And you know that true hunger and thirst is not something you just talk about casually or intellectually. Ultimately, hunger and thirst cannot be faked. Hunger and thirst is something that people know experientially. That's what what we mean by experiential knowledge. Knowledge that we obtain by experiencing something. That's the focus of the Beatitudes. Christ is giving us experiential marks. He is giving us marks of that which becomes real to the believer and continues to be real his entire life. And so it is with hunger and with thirst. You can't fake that. It's either there or it's not. I ask you tonight, congregation, what is the deepest yearning of your soul? Do you understand what Christ means here by this beatitude? Do you understand in some measure what it means to yearn after the living God. Because as I said before, that's so beautiful about these marks. They are all God-centered. It's all God-centered, you see. The person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, they yearn for this righteousness, not because they're, they want heaven or they want to escape hell or they want to find happiness. No, their yearning is after God himself. That's it. Because you see, the life that comes from God always seeks to find its fulfillment in God. That's the point here. And so that yearning, that yearning after Christ and his righteousness, that intense desire to be a partaker of that righteousness that Christ has accomplished and that is offered to us freely in the gospel without money and without price. Ultimately, that yearning comes from God himself. And that's why it is such a fundamental fruit of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so I would agree with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary that this verse is probably one of the most remarkable descriptions of spiritual life in all of Scripture. This is it. Listen to a few passages from the psalm. Psalm 42, verse 2. We're so familiar with that. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. That's it. And it's because of that yearning that the sinner realizes, I cannot be right with this God, I cannot be reconciled with this God unless I have a righteousness that satisfies Him. And I don't have it. But the wonderful thing, the truth of the gospel is that God who works that yearning also unveils to us who Christ is, unveils to us the perfect righteousness that He has accomplished by His doing and by his dying. We sang together Psalm 63. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. 
My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Do you recognize that in some measure? Watson, Thomas Watson, has a a beautiful statement in connection with this. Listen carefully to what he says. He says, desire is the best discovery of the Christian. Desire is the best discovery of the Christian. Elsewhere, he says, the Christian is chiefly known by his desires. So the question tonight is not whether you are a perfect Christian or whether you are an accomplished Christian. The question tonight is, as we anticipate next Lord's Day, what is your desire? Do you recognize in some measure what Christ is saying here? Can you truly say, as the Dutch poet says it so beautifully, give me this Jesus or else I die? That's it. That's where the Spirit leads us time and again. That I must have Christ. That Christ alone is the solution for my soul. That's what he does. He works that intense longing in there. But I also need to say here that not only is there a yearning for Christ and his finished work, but it also includes a yearning to be like Christ. So not only a yearning for his imputed righteousness, the righteousness which we don't have, the righteousness which God imputes to the sinner who believes in Christ, who trusts in Christ. That's what we call imputed righteousness. Righteousness that God credits to our bankrupt sinner's account. But also a yearning for what we call imparted righteousness. A yearning to live a life that honors Him, to live a life that pleases Him. Listen to the plain language of 1 John. 1 John 2, verse 29. You know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who find their salvation in Christ alone, for whom Christ becomes their all and in all, they also become doers of righteousness. Those two belong inseparably together, congregation. It's impossible to be a partaker of the imputed righteousness of Christ and not to show evidence of imparted righteousness. Those two belong together as two sides belong to one coin. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 7. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And so the true believer yearns, ultimately yearns for both, for imputed righteousness and for imparted righteousness. A true believer has a desire to live a life that conforms to the will of Christ. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, Not everyone who claims to be 
a believer will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father. So ultimately the word righteousness encompasses all of that. And so theologically, what that simply means, that this word encompasses justification and sanctification. Justification means the restoration of our relationship with God through Christ and His finished work. And sanctification is the outworking, the outflow of that relationship. A renewed relationship will result in a renewed life. That's why John says, He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Because those that come to Christ by faith, those who come to Christ because they hunger and thirst after that righteousness, they hunger and thirst after being reconciled with God through Christ, they will also be doers, they also become like Christ. Those who come to Christ also become like Christ. And so it's the mark of true spirituality that there will also be a hungering and thirsting after holiness. And you can, that's the yearning of Paul in Romans 7. That's the yearning, that's the grieving of a man who desires to be righteous and who finds in himself so much unrighteousness. And so ultimately, the Christian needs Christ for both. We need Christ, a Christ that is given unto us for our justification, but also for our sanctification. We need Christ for imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. And that's why this is a lifelong experience. As long as we are here on this earth, the Spirit will so work in us that we will continue to hunger and thirst after Christ and His righteousness. It's so beautifully expressed in Psalm 43, verse 6. I stretch forth my hands unto thee, my soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. O congregation, do you ever sing Psalm 42? Is that ever the expression of your own soul? Do you recognize yourself in Psalm 42? As a heart pants after the water brooks, so my heart pants after thee the living God. And we will not be disappointed because those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. That's such a beautiful statement. And in the Greek, it's such a powerful word. It means they will be saturated. They will be satisfied. They will be filled to overflowing. To put it very simply, congregation, the God who by His Spirit empties you, empties you because He desires to fill you, but to fill you with Christ and His finished work. This is a God who will not leave you hanging. This is a God who has worked that desire in you. 
This is a God who has worked that yearning in you to bring you to his son again and again, for there he can meet you. In his son, he can embrace you. In his son, he can bestow his favor upon you. But only in his son. That's why our life long, God has to take away all of our spiritual crutches. All those crutches that we lean upon outside of Christ. Because he wants us to rest only in Christ. But when we do, when we take refuge to him, when we again and again put our trust in him and his finished work, he will not disappoint us. In Psalm 107 verse 9 we read, For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Psalm 132 verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Yes, by my spirit, I make you experience your poverty. But why? Because I want you to eat of the bread of life. I want you to come to my son. I want you to find your trust alone in him. So in John 10 verse 10b, he says, I have come to give them life and to give them life abundantly. Oh, let me say again, congregation. God is not a stingy God. God is not a God who gives his children a crumb now and then. That's not his character. God's character. He is an overflowing fountain of good. As it says so beautifully in the opening article of the Belgian Confession. And out of the overflowing abundance of his heart of love, he desires to bless his people. He desires to satisfy us, but to satisfy us only with that which satisfies him. And that is to satisfy us with Christ. And so it is God himself, dear believer. It is God who has created that yearning in your soul because he yearns after you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. But the only place he can meet you, the only place he can embrace you is in Christ and him crucified. This, of course, will be the focus of the Lord's Supper also next week. It's especially at the Lord's Supper that God wants to fulfill what is so beautifully expressed in Jeremiah 31, verse 14. What a wonderful verse. And I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness. And here it comes. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. The congregation, that's his desire with the Lord's Supper. His desire in the Lord's Supper is to satisfy your soul, but to satisfy your soul with Christ, his beloved Son. That's why the Lord Jesus says, do this, 
Do this in remembrance of me. And the only way we can benefit from the Lord's Supper, the only way we can experience that satisfaction, if we do not focus on ourselves, but if we focus on Him, on His wonderful person, focus on His finished work, focus on those visible signs of His love, that broken bread and that shed wine, which tell us how satisfied God is with His Son and what He has accomplished, and how it is His desire to satisfy our soul with what He is satisfied with, the finished work of His Son. This do in remembrance of me. And if you are a true believer, if you are a true child of God, you will not be able ultimately to be satisfied with anything less than Christ. Give me Jesus or else I die. That's it. Because once we have tasted that, once we have experienced that over and over again, That is indeed the only thing that truly satisfies us. That's why Jesus said, blessed are they, happy are they, who hunger and thirst after me and my righteousness. For they will experience that satisfaction. And that's real happiness, congregation. That's what Christ is defining in his Beatitudes, real happiness. And you can experience that happiness with the tears streaming down your face. That happiness that is found in Christ. And so, it's very simple, is it not? For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For them, for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's why we have bread for hungry souls, and we have wine for thirsty souls. For thirsty souls. That's why the Lord's Supper is a meal whereby Christ desires in a very special way, in a sacramental way, in which he desires to satisfy the souls of his children. And if you know nothing of this desire, no matter what you may profess, then you do not belong at the Lord's table. And so, as I will say again next week, I'm not saying that you have to be an accomplished Christian. But if God's Spirit has worked in you, you will be able to recognize yourself in some measure in this spiritual portrait. And oh, let us pray that in a rich way, let's plead upon this promise during this week of preparation. Let's make sure that as we prepare for this spiritual meal, make sure you don't spoil your appetite this week with the dainties of this world. As sometimes our children when they feed on junk food and come to the table without an appetite. 
And so Satan will tempt you this week in many ways. Make sure this week that you, you stimulate this appetite so that you may be satisfied at the Lord's table. And if you don't know anything of this, oh, then I may proclaim to you that that righteousness is available for you without money and without price. That righteousness that God demands of us, he offers to us freely in the gospel to you also today because we need that righteousness. Don't be like that foolish man who came into the wedding, into the banquet hall, thinking that his own garment was good enough, who rejected the garment that was offered by the king and his servants. You cannot appear before God unless you are a partaker of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so seek him, because you will hear me say it over and over again, to be unprepared for the Lord's table means you are unprepared to meet God. And dear people of God, there will come a day that you will hunger and thirst no more. And yet you will. Listen to these amazing words from Revelation 7. Verse 16 and 17. What does it say there? They shall hunger no more. Need to thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. So amazing. The future for God's people will be everlasting satisfaction, but also everlasting nourishment through the Lamb of God who will forever feed us and lead us to fountains of living waters. And so the Christ who will invite you to his table is the Christ who says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, but they shall be filled. Amen. Lord, wilt thou bless thy word. We pray that we will seriously and prayerfully examine ourselves in light of this portion of thy word, which speaks such plain and clear language. And Lord, we pray that for those in our midst who know experientially what that means, to yearn for Christ and his righteousness, who cannot be satisfied with anything but Christ and his righteousness. Oh, we pray that the Lord's Supper will be a blessing indeed, that in a very real way we may experience at thy table that thou dost satisfy thy poor with bread, that we may come to the table and to partake of that spiritual meal by faith and experience thy overflowing love in our soul. Bless us in this week of preparation. 
Keep us from sin. Keep us from backsliding. And forgive us our sins. For Jesus' sake alone. Amen.